Good morning in town. <clears throat> if you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And um, we have been in a series looking at Jesus, uh, specifically looking at some of the parts of Jesus' life and story that we don't get always to spend as much time on. You know, we talk about Jesus a lot at Christmas. We talk about him a lot at Easter, and this is right and good. But it also means that sometimes those become kind of black holes that pull all of our conversation about Jesus. And we don't get to touch on as many things as we like. And so this was a great opportunity for us to do that. We've been looking at a lot of Jesus' firsts. We've talked about when he first was baptized. We talked about his first temptation. We talked about his first miracle. And all of that comes largely at the very beginning of the Gospels. Now, sandwiched in between all of those things is another first for Jesus. And that first is his first sermon or the beginning of his ministry. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about um, and spend a lot of time on today. This is God's word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your story, for your presence with us, for your transforming power in us, for the excitement of sending off uh, those you love to love others well, the excitement of seeing new people come here to love us well, to be loved by us well. Lord God, may you be in all of this just as you would make your word living this morning, that it also would change us and that we would go out and continue to be your light and your life in this world. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So in the spring, we actually spent a number of weeks looking at the first half of the book of Romans. And When we looked at the book of Romans, we spent a little bit of time on uh, a chart that looked a lot like this, this slide right here. And and I want to give you a little bit of refreshment if you don't remember that, because the context we talked about then and the context today are the same context. It's really, really important to have that on our brain as we understand this short but very, very powerful sermon, the first sermon of Jesus. So, If you were an Israelite, if you were someone um, who was in the people of God, who was of the people of God in the Old Testament times, you understood the world a certain way. And the way you understood the world looks like this chart. You would believe that God created the world, that he created it good, that he created mankind, but then that mankind falls into sin and brokenness and all of creation with it. And then you would believe that God had raised up a people for his own, not because of anything those people had done, but just because he loved them, his treasured possession, that you were a part of that treasured people, Israel, and that you were going to spend forever, not like any of the other nations around who were doing their own thing, you were going to spend forever with God. That was your narrative. That was your idea of the world. Unfortunately, your day-to-day life and the history of your people 
um, would complicate this a lot. Because it would actually look a whole lot more like this. Yes, God did create the world, and mankind falls, and it's bad. And then mankind, you know, is, is raised up through like Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, and then almost 500 years of slavery. And then you get Moses and Joshua, and then we fall again into the book of Judges. And then we get kings, maybe a little stutter start with Saul, but then we're David, and then we're Solomon, and civil war and exile. You see a pattern here. Like, things are not working out for Israel the way you would think they would. And so because of this, over time, the prophets begin to write about two realities simultaneously that are related to one another. On one hand, they begin to talk about this day of the Lord, a final time where God's judgment is going to come to all of these other nations who are not living the way God's people are supposed to live. And also by kind of de facto are fighting against and bringing pain and suffering on Israel. Also, all of the people within Israel who are not living the way they're supposed to be would be a part of this as well. At the same time, there also is this view of a Messiah that all of the stutter starts that had happened, whether it was Moses, Joshua into the judges, or it was Saul, David, Solomon into the civil war, or the exile, all of these stutter starts would be not undone, but they would, they would be redeemed because we'd finally have a judge and a king and a leader who would be awesome and who would not be like any of the stutter starts and who would finally come and bring wholeness to the world. This was your view of the way things were going to be. But until that point, you were still in here. You were living a life of suffering. In fact, after the exile, what we read in the the latter part of the Old Testament and then in a, a period of time that we don't have writings from called the intertestamental period, if you want to get technical, there is, there's just even more. There are a couple of times where a few generals from Israel rise up and try to bring revolution. They do it for a little while, and then they fail. There's times where religious revivals pop up for five minutes, and it's wonderful, and then things kind of go back to this place of hopelessness and longing. God, when are you going to come back? What's going to happen? We thought we were going to be better when we came back from exile, but it just feels like everything's a hollow shell of what it once was. Why, why, why? I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people feel the same about life right now in this world. You know, there's, there's so many places of brokenness right now, whether it's thinking about our environment, our finances, our political situations, uh, the state of, you know, name your generation. There's a lot of feeling that things are not the way things are supposed to be. You know, I work a lot with young people here at the church, and so I, I read a lot about kind of young people around the world. And 
it's really been a, a humbling week for me in some of my research because I've run across some concepts that I wasn't aware of before. Um, this song has been playing as I've been researching a lot in my head. We sing it sometimes here, Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. I've been feeling a lot of shadows deepen this week. This is a concept I ran across in my research. Uh, it's uh, a Chinese concept um, called Bailan. It is a, uh, a place that, that millions of teens all the way into 30s and 40s in China are experiencing this sense of hopelessness, and it basically translates to let it rot. This belief that no matter how much work we put into life, no matter how much betterment we try to do for ourselves or our, for our society, it's not enough. It's hopeless. It's, 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 it's painful. And so, you know what? Just let the whole thing burn down. Let it rot. It's even harder. I, I looked at, at South Korea, which is actually one of the nations in this world that's actually probably most like the United States in a lot of ways. They have a concept called the Sampo generation, a view of teens, again, all the way into 30-somethings, where they've watched individuals giving up a number of different things. Sampo means three um, things that are being given up or being rejected. And look at these. Courtship, marriage, childbirth. They're watching people just declining wanting to have children because... Why? Why would I want to have kids? The, the world's literally going to hell in a handbasket. Things are getting harder and harder. Why? Ironically, this, and sadly, this trend has continued, and suddenly a, a five-beginning generation, people are saying, well, look, if I'm not getting married, I'm not having kids, well, I can't buy a home, so I can't do those things. Maybe I'm, you know, I, I don't find purpose in my job anymore. Giving up seven things, starting to giving up relationships, and look at how it keeps going. Hope, health visible appearance, and literally giving up life. And there's a massive suicide epidemic in that nation. I see a lot of the same things in, in our students and our young people and my peers today. And you might as well. The sense that we want more, but, but we can't do it. We keep stutter starting. It doesn't matter I vote for this guy or this guy. It doesn't matter. Everything's corrupt. I, I try to like this institution, and then I find out it's broken. I want to put my time into this institution, and then I find out it's broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. In Jesus' day, again, it was the same way. And a big question with respect to Jesus' sermon here, is how were people in Jesus' day responding to the way things were not supposed to be? Well, they responded in a lot of different ways, but there's kind of four large groups or ideas that rise to the surface. One of them was the zealots, uh, this group of people who thought, you know, it, it's the armed occupation of Israel that's the problem, so let's just get a revolution going and start killing people, kill the Romans, kill the centurions, kill the politicians, and it's going to be okay. There's a sense of the Pharisees. and you know, Pharisees get a really bad rap in the New Testament, rightly so in some respects, except when we realize that culturally, we would probably be the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who believed what's going to be our response to 
the brokenness in the world, this longing we have, it's going to be holiness. We want people to get right with God. This is going to be the, the moral group, the, the you know, get your act together, guys, and we look down on anyone who's not doing that. There was a smaller group as well called the Sadducees, which were sort of a little bit more prosperity-esque. Um, they believed that if, if God had favor on them, they were going to enjoy life now. We, we might be there as well. And then there are also the, the mystics, or some groups would call these the, uh, the Essenes, this group of people who sort of believed, well, we've got to try some new stuff, and maybe we're going to move away from you know, Israel proper and go live in the mountains and go worship in new ways and try to seek God and see if the Messiah will show up. So it's into this soup, this soup of hopelessness, that Jesus says these basic words. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's the point for today. I believe we live in a world very similar to the first century in the sense that everything is up for grabs. It seems like there's a lot of hopelessness in our world. There's a lot of aimlessness. You might feel that in your family. You might feel that in your job. You might feel that in our country. And a lot of people are trying to respond to that in a lot of different ways. So my question for us is how does this message hit us How does it hit this culture, this place? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's walk through these four lines, this really, really basic sermon. First off, the time is fulfilled. This is a really basic concept, but basically it just means that Jesus is already claiming to be who he is the Messiah. This is actually a much more bold claim than it maybe comes across. By saying the time is fulfilled, Jesus was marrying himself to this idea of the arc of history, this idea that the Messiah was supposed to show up. The day of the Lord is going to happen. This is going to be real. It's actually why Mark here writes, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. There's, there's almost this sense of a passing of the torch that John's ministry ends and Jesus' ministry begins. And what, what, is, what is the trade-off there? Well, John was seen by a lot of people as the embodiment of Elijah, the, the kind of the, the final prophet, the one who was going to come and set the final stage for the Messiah to show up. A lot of people began to believe this about John because they knew that's where this arc of prophecy was going. And so for Jesus to be able to say, the time is fulfilled, he is acknowledging that line of John coming into the present. But if that is actually more explosive than it seems, this statement is incredibly explosive. The kingdom of God is at hand. The idea of the kingdom of God is, um, or the kingdom of heaven, Matthew actually refers to as the kingdom of heaven a lot more. The rest of the gospel writers and Paul 
usually call it the kingdom of God, um, is actually something that, that is somewhat confusing in Scripture. So I actually want to take a pause and help us understand this. And I'm going to talk to you about it, not talking down to you, but actually because this is actually the best way I understand it. It's also the, the way I teach my kids this concept, all right? So I'd like to introduce you all to the nation of Stevonia. Stevonia is a wonderful place. Its boundaries, of course, it's a beautiful map right there, right? Great artist drew that. Stevonia is ruled by a king. And Stevonia has a wonderful, good king. But one day, something happened. Stevonia was invaded. And Stevonia had a new king put on the throne. And this was not a good king. And this king abused his subjects. Everyone didn't know what to do. They longed for their good king. One day, their good king sent his finest general back to Stevonia. And this general lands on the edge of Stevonia and slowly but surely retakes the country. And finally, one day, the good king is on the throne again of Stevonia. The question I ask my kids is this, and the question I'll ask you is this, when did this good king own Stevonia? When was he actually the king of Stevonia? Was it only at the beginning? Was it after he took control again? Is it just at the end? It's complicated. Scripture introduces this idea of the kingdom of God the same way. On one hand, walk us back here, we believe God has always been sovereignly in control. This is his world. Jesus affirms this. He says, this is my father's world. This place, it has never changed. It has never stopped. In some respects, you know, any allegory or illustration breaks down and the idea of a bad king who could somehow kick out a good king doesn't work, right? Because in some ways, Satan and, and evil and death and sin and rebellion and all of these things, they are not even a drop in a bucket of power as compared to our almighty and sovereign God. He never lost control. However, in another sense, we see scripture all the time talking about two separate realities, the kingdom of God, but then also the kingdom of this world, ruled by the prince and powers of the air, the, 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 the kingdom of, of flesh and death and all of these things. Some people in a nation like Stevonia might say, oh, well, we used to have an old king, now we have a new king. But a lot of people would say, no, this guy's not the king. He's a usurper. We're just being occupied. This is still the good king's world. And so scripture talks about this idea of the kingdom of God being both past and present. This is why when Jesus shows up, even though nothing has happened yet. We have a baptism, which 
a few people have seen and the Holy Spirit of God descending on Jesus saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You have that supernatural action. We're about to have a small group wedding wine explosion, but we've had nothing else up to this point. So what right does Jesus have to say the kingdom of God is here unless he is the kingdom of God? So in some ways we have this past kingdom of God and a present kingdom of God, but also he is the kingdom of God, this active kingdom of God that's coming in. And later we'll see in Scripture, as Jesus talks about the miracles he does, as he talks about the church going forward, as he talks about the the kingdom of God advancing, well, he's also talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means that although not complete, God's people are also pushing back the darkness. His miracles are this echo of what's to come. It's what Jimmy talked about last week when he connected Jesus' miracle about making wine for this wedding and Jeremiah chapter 30 when it says one day the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Jesus' miracles all point to this idea. They're sort of like micro-kingdom incursions, if you will. And so again, one day, the Bible can also talk about the kingdom of God as something that will come. That's why we can pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we praying there? In some respects, we're praying, Jesus, just be active in our world and in our lives right now. But we're also echoing the very end of Scripture. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're echoing that sense of longing. And I would challenge you if, um, I love that we, uh, pray the Lord's Prayer each and every week. I'll, I'll be honest, I actually used to not love it. It's not a negative against Luke or in town or anything. I think I just, I grew up in a tradition that was very non-liturgical, or at least I thought it wasn't liturgical. We did special music every week, so there was a kind of its own liturgy. But um, I kind of saw this repetition of prayers as this negative bad thing that was going to get stale. And ironically, I, I had a conversation with somebody once who said, Yeah, but at the end of the day, that is the first prayer my kids learned. And think about how theologically rich it is. This week even, I've been challenged to think about even just that first line of the Lord's Prayer in a new light. What does it mean when I say, thy kingdom come? what What sadness am I feeling that I don't feel like the kingdom's already here? What's my experience of brokenness? Where's my longing coming from that wants God to come back and make things new? When Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is here, he's referring to this idea that even though not everything has been made better, his presence is the answer to the brokenness, to the sin to the death, to the evil, that all of these groups are trying in various ways to respond to. Jesus is saying, I'm the response. This is not a question of 
a religion I'm bringing or a new series of rituals or a new series of, of ideas or whatnot. No, it's me who's coming. And so he says, in response to me coming, there's, there's just two responses. And they are actually the, the two same responses that will echo throughout the rest of the New Testament. We actually will go, you know, we're not going to turn to it now, but in Acts chapter 2, we see a huge explosion as the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples and they begin to preach to this gigantic crowd of thousands who are gathered for a Jewish holiday in Jerusalem. And Peter's message, he gives a little bit more historical background, but it ends up being summed up in the exact same thing. Repent, be baptized, believe the gospel. So what's that mean, to repent? I think some people think it means this. Prepare to meet thy doom. Wow. I'm very much believing that guy and his feeling of doom right there. Um, I think this is, the, this is the opinion that a lot of people have of Christians and our understanding of this idea of Jesus and calling us to repentance. I don't want to minimize at all the evil or the brokenness of sin or the evil in our own lives. But I think often when I look at the entirety of the message of Jesus, I don't think Jesus discounts evil or minimizes it whatsoever. But ironically, most of Jesus' words are not harshly like this. It's not, again, a very pharisaical, you who are doing these horrible things, get your act together before God comes back. We just don't see that tone from Jesus a lot. And, and here's why I think it, because I actually think this is not the danger. This is the danger. This is a, a quote I was actually looking for, just through some quotes uh, as I was looking at this idea of this sermon um, by a, a parenting specialist named L.R. Nost. She actually writes some wonderful books. And this was actually posted originally as a, um, on a couple of different websites as, as a very positive, God-filled message. But I want, you to, I want to read it to you. Do not be dismayed by the brokenness of this world. All things break and all things can be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So go, love intentionally, extravagantly, unconditionally. So far, I love this quote so much. The broken world waits in darkness for the light that is you. Guys, I will tell you, many people in, in my generation and those coming under you, much less those older than me, I'll be honest, I think the biggest place of apathy and brokenness and sadness and longing does not come from the great evils of this world as much as the recognition that the light inside of me is not enough to deal with them. No amount of t-shirt activism, no amount of fundraising, no amount of college education, no amount of excitement about this political candidate or that political candidate, no amount of anything seems to work. 
And so I'll be honest, what ends up happening is you just sort of settle into this apathy of, well, I guess this is the way it's going to be. So I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a job and maybe I'll get married or not, or maybe I'll have kids or not and I'll make some money and I'll have some fun, but it's not going to get any better. I think when Jesus says repent, one of the biggest things he's saying is not simply repent for all the evil that you have done, but also in all honesty, repent of the goodness that you have that you think is enough. Jesus is not speaking this message to a bunch of horrible, you know, prostitutes or um, tax collectors. This is not yet the crowd that we think of as the sinner crowd with Jesus. When he's first moving into these people in Galilee, he's talking in synagogues. He's talking to other religious people. He's talking to his family members and his friends. And I think for him to say repent to them is in part to say, even you and your goodness is not enough. We cannot heal this world. It's going to take something more. We cannot bring the kingdom of God into existence. The kingdom of God has to come. And Jesus gets to say, that's me. And that's why he says, believe in the gospel. This word gospel, many of you know, it's a Greek word, evangelon. It means good news. It's a concept that comes from a couple of different places, but actually one of its most used places was actually the announcement of either military victory or of the birth or new reign of a king. This is basically the old school equivalent of long live the king. This is Caesar Augustus. Augustus came into power um, towards the late 20s BC and reigned for about half of Jesus' life. When Caesar Augustus, who was um, Julius Caesar's adopted son, was born, a pronouncement went out into the entire Roman world, which was most of the world at the time, that said this, our Savior has been born and he will bring peace. And when he became king, he was venerated as a god, as the god who would bring everlasting peace to the world. Sound familiar? I mean, we might as well break out into a Christmas hymn at this point. Like this idea of a savior who has come, who is the Lord, who will bring peace forever. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, Handel could have been talking about this. For the Romans, that was good news. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the good news. My presence, me being here, and what my transformation in you looks like, that is good news. So how does this hit us today? How is it supposed to hit into our world? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think the question it leaves me with, and hopefully you as well, is is a two-part question. I need to ask myself, is what I believe really good news? 
it would be very, very easy for us to be a really, really great group of nice Americans who want to do good in our community and who pool our resources together and have parenting classes and small groups and do cool things out in the community and gather together. I mean, this is good stuff. It is not going to bring salvation to the world. Do I believe that no matter how many parenting and marriage books I read, no matter how much how many podcasts I listen to, no matter how much I work on myself, that if any of that is coming out of just this sense of I need to get my crap together, I need to be a better person, I need to be a self-help guru, rather than saying, Jesus, are you transforming me? Is that where my belief lies? Is that good news? And then secondly, if that's true, does Atlanta think in town has good news? Beyond an individual place. I watched this play out in real time a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have an acquaintance um, who God's really blessed and, and he's gotten some of his writings picked up by the Atlantic. And um, so a couple of weeks ago, he um, had put out a piece, and then he, I don't even know what to call it anymore because I would have said he tweeted about it, but now it's X, so who knows? But um, anyway, he, he writes about this, and I watch in real time this guy just get digitally assaulted. And not assaulted in sort of, a, oh, you're a Christian, you believe stupid things or whatnot, but no, a, why are you taking this opportunity as a Christian to talk about whatever he was talking about, rather than talking about religious scandals or you know, sex abuse or the, the, the looking down of women or LGBTQ issues or da-da-da-da-da. And it just get on and on and on and on and on. And I realized what was so sad was this guy who had written a really wonderful piece about Jesus and the church. Everyone's association of Christianity was horribly bad for the world. The idea was Christianity was bad news for the world. It was anti-gospel for the world. I hate that. I know Jesus tells me that in some respects the gospel message is going to be foolishness. I, I know that. And yet I also hate it so much and I think we have this wonderful opportunity as the people of God at a, not some grand ideological level, but in your life and in mine and in this specific place, in this neighborhood and in this city and in your jobs and with your kids and in your schools, we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, am I legitimately projecting good news? A good news that says, I am not just about community service and I am not just about moral living. I am not just about a political platform. I am not just about a certain ruling. I am not just about this or that or this or that. But I believe that you and I can actually get changed by Jesus. I actually 
have hope. I believe you do. I see hope in this church when I see some of you struggle with your kids who don't believe in Jesus. I see hope when some of you live for years with diseases or spouses or parents with diseases that will not go away. I see some of you and you've lost your job and you get a new one and you lose that job and you get another one and it just keeps going. These stories, these places of hope are good news not just because we've kind of come together and supported one another, not because we're going to be kind of a a good place that visits people in the hospital and cares about people and whatnot. No, it's good news because Jesus has transformed us. Jesus transforms me so that when one of you loses a job, I want to give more to the church to help out with you, not because it's a nice thing to do, but because He's transformed me and he's transformed you and you're my brother or sister in Christ. It's good news because it's not wishful thinking when one of you ends up dying and I sit there and I can weep because I hate death so much and I know I am going to see you again and I can actually look your spouse in the eye in this non-fake put my fingers in my ears and la 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 and they're in a better place. No, I can say it is real that one day all tears will be wiped away. I can say that because Jesus is here, because the kingdom is at hand, and he's in you, he's in me, and he's transformed us. In the next couple weeks, I am so excited. We are going to roll out a lot of new cool things that are happening here at InTown. We get to tell you about kind of the, the, the kingdom impact plan, we literally call it, for the next year. But it is not our effort that makes a kingdom impact. It's not our organization that makes a kingdom impact. It is not our money or our finances or any of that that makes it kingdom impact. It is that Jesus is with us. And all of the things we do, if we can carry that hope with us, the effectiveness will not be judged in people or in money or in the size of this building or in this church, but it will be judged by how Jesus actually shows up in real people's lives. And that is what makes me go to work in the morning. Let's pray. Jesus, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Would you help us please to believe to repent, to believe again the gospel. Amen. Really quickly, when I come to the table, I think of a couple of things. One of them is how excited I am that Jesus doesn't just come to us in words. This isn't a lecture series that you show up at. He's real, and part of him being real is that he interacts with us with our senses So what we do here isn't just some religious ritual. It's a real time and place that Jesus has promised through the Holy Spirit to work in us. And the second reason I love it is actually very similar to what I talked about with the Lord's Prayer. And I say this sometimes when we do baptism as well, but 
Big shocker, pastor, there are totally days I wake up and I do not believe the gospel. There are totally days I wake up and despair is real and depression is real and the brokenness and the bills and the life and the kids and everything is so overwhelming. My own will, my own cognitive ability, my own feelings are not ironclad enough to believe the gospel. Jesus in me, the Holy Spirit working in me, is big enough to believe the gospel about himself for me. And so he gives me these things each and every week, just like he gives me you guys, to remind me what is true. So this morning, you might not feel like a Christian You might be in a fight with your spouse. You might be bored out of your mind. You might be hot and distracted and whatever. You might be looking forward to the inflatables. I don't know. But you get to be reminded that what Jesus has done in your life is real and true. If that's that's not you, also, thank you so much for the honesty. It is okay for you not to take this. We actually would love for you not to. If you're not a believer, Because I don't want you to feel like you have to perform. If Jesus hasn't transformed your life, it's okay. We want to talk about that. We want to love you. We're so thankful you're here. But if this is you, you're not taking it because you feel something this morning or you have assented to some level of belief. You're not a zealot or a a mystic or a Pharisee or a Sadducee. You get to be a Jesus follower this morning. And your faith Your belief, your repentance gets based on what he has done for you. The fact that he has shown up and the kingdom of God is at hand. So I'd invite you to take that this morning. Just a couple of things to remember as our our servers come up. All of our bread is gluten-free. You'll also find in the tray here, you'll find wine in the middle and grape juice on the outside. You can take whichever of your preference. And here at InTown, we like to hold all of the elements until everyone gets it so we can all take it together and be reminded that we're one body in Jesus. Let me pray again. Jesus, again, um, I pray so much for someone who, I pray this morning for someone who knows you love them, that they would just carry that joy into the rest of the world. I pray for someone this morning who struggles so much to love you, that you would hold their hand and remind them that they are not judged according to who they are, but who you are. And I pray, God, for someone in here who has no clue who you are, God, that you would continue to be loving and patient with them and that you would call them to yourself and that they would see that we don't have any answer other than introducing them to you because that's what you've done in us. Thank you, God, for this time, and we pray it in your name. Amen.